Welcome to Straight from the CPA's Mouth. I'm Laura Lee, Director of External Relations at CPA Alberta, and I'll be your host for today's show. My guest today is Janine Brogan, and we're going to be discussing financial literacy and why money is important. I heard that future casting is an essential tool for long-term business. According to a recent poll, 48% of Canadians say they are $200 or less each month away from again? Do you think the energy sector is the economy is too dependent on leaves university with 26,000 considering cloud computing for my business? Filter out the noise. Hear it straight from the CPA's mouth. So thanks, Janine, so much for joining us on this very, very rainy day in Calgary. Um, very excited to have you on the show. Do you want to introduce yourself, say a few words about yourself to our listeners? Sure. First off, thanks for having me. My name is Janine, and I am a financial uh, blogger and speaker over at my website, uh, JanineRogan.com, and I spend many hours per week educating Canadians on all things personal finance. Sounds great. I look forward to hearing all about personal finance throughout the course of this episode. So in the previous podcast featuring Sam Virasekara as our guest, she posed the following question for us to discuss and answer. Why is money important to you? So Janine, why is money important to you? I think there's a couple of reasons money is important. The first being financial security. And what I mean by that is having enough money, obviously, to meet your your financial requirements and your bills on a monthly basis so that you don't feel like there is a lot of scarcity and stress in your life. And then once you've kind of gotten that, I guess, threshold covered, you might look to money as a way to allow you to do the things in your life that you want to. So whether that's quitting your job or traveling the world, money can be a tool for you to achieve those things. Okay. How do you think people define financial security for themselves? I guess... There could be a number of ways. I know there was a survey recently that showed that a number of North Americans were $2,000 away from not being able to cover their bills. So in that situation, I would say maybe it would be defined as being able to have money in the bank in an emergency fund to cover some of those bills. But I think on a broader scale, hopefully it's to be able to retire one day and not have to worry about uh, not having enough money to cover bills into your 80s, 90s, and maybe into um, your 100s. Okay. So are there ways in which money is unimportant to you? Unimportant? Yeah. Yeah, I think in a sense, when you're looking at every dollar spent and meticulously combing through the pennies, sometimes that uh, can be where money might be a little bit unimportant. Um, But again, I guess that would be um, because I'm in a situation where I do have control over my financial situation. Another area where money might not be important is obviously when it comes to, you know, some experiences as well as family health, I think, would be a huge area where I think money would be kind of no object. You'd be willing to pay whatever it would be in those situations. Yeah, okay. What do you think the world would be like if money wasn't used to buy and pay for things? I guess it would probably go back to the barter system where people would trade services or goods for things. Mm-hmm. It'd be an interesting world because you'd have to value whose you know, goods and services are actually worth more than others. But I I think, you know, as we move further away from cash, I know I never carry cash in my in my wallet. Mm-hmm. And we move more and more towards the credit card and towards digital currencies, we might kind of, in a sense, be moving away from money 
in its most, I guess, traditional sense. And so kind of on a related note, what would you say the benefits of money are using it to buy, buy and pay for things as opposed to the barter system? Yeah, I think obviously the currencies around the world allow us to um, understand the value of things in different places. So, you know, $10 here might be $12 in the States and we're able to, I guess, buy things from all over the world because we do have that means of, I guess, trading something that is equally valued around the world. I think, as I mentioned before, money is great for being able to buy things that you want to do with maybe people you love and care about and ultimately really decreasing that financial stress you might have on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And that taps a little bit into what you said, money not being able to buy experiences as well, right? In the sense that you can go to, you can travel and you can use money for an experience, but it the experience itself is is invaluable in a lot of ways. Absolutely. And when you think about going to some of those places, or even if it's just, you know, somewhere that's close by to your hometown, you don't have to travel halfway around the world if you're with people you care about, you know, you can't really put a price tag on that. Yeah. So we've talked about the benefits of money. What are some of the problems of money? Oh, I think the list is quite long on that. But I think to start, there's obviously some inequality with money in our society today between the very wealthy and the the poor in our society. As well, I think greed can be a huge driver Mm. for some of the negatives around money. Um, People, you know, doing things at all costs to get more money as opposed to thinking about, I guess, maybe those that are less fortunate. Um, So common saying, I mean, some people say, if I only had money, it would solve all my problems. Do you agree with this? No. um, One of my... I guess friends out in Toronto actually just wrote a book called Happy Go Money, and uh, it's a great read if you have a chance to pick it up. But she talks about that exact saying, and it's, you know, if I only had a million dollars, then I'd be happier. Yeah. And then, you know, she interviewed or there was a study around people who had a million dollars, and to them it was if I only had $3 million, <laughs> then I'd be happy. So I think it really just starts to perpetuate, and when you are saying things like that, it might be because there's something else in your life that's making you unhappy. Yeah. Obviously, up to a point, like I think there's many studies that have shown once we kind of hit that benchmark of I think it's around seventy or eighty thousand dollars, depending where you live, no more money is going to actually give you any more happiness. Mm-hmm. So once you're able to kind of meet those basic needs. Okay. So you talked earlier about financial security, how money can represent that. What are some other intangible qualities that money has come to represent to people? Financial security as you mentioned, yeah, I think status in society in terms of wealth. So mm-hmm. how big of a house can I buy? How nice of a car can I drive? Um, in many situations, I think an intangible could be education. People are able to pay for education if they have money and maybe they wouldn't have access to loans or the school they wanted to go to was more expensive. So I think it can represent a lot of different things. Yeah. And why do you think money has come to represent things like status, success, maybe even happiness to a lot of people? Oh, we're getting real philosophical (laughs) here. We are. These are deep questions. Yeah, I think ultimately, again, we like to compare ourselves to people. And so if I'm able to have more than someone else, then I think there's an innate drive to kind of compete with your neighbor on those things. Mm -hmm. So the whole keeping up with the Joneses notion, if my neighbor buys a new car, then I'm feeling like I'm going to need to buy a new car as well. Yeah. So I think that's probably where it stems from. Okay. Um, I do want to get 
get back to this concept of keeping up with the Joneses, particularly as it relates to financial literacy. Mm-hmm. But we'll get to that very shortly. Um, so you talked a little bit about how if someone makes a million dollars, they say, I'd be happier if I had $3 million. And a recent study from investment firm Edward Jones found that Canadians considered 300000 their ideal income. Interesting enough, the same studies showed that younger Canadians need 166622 a year to feel financially comfortable. Why do you think younger Canadians value their financial comfort at a lower income level? Do, what do you think that means? Um, what does that suggest about the value of money to younger Canadians? I think there's maybe a piece that's missing in that puzzle, and that's the fact that younger Canadians or maybe the millennial demographic and Gen Z that's coming up behind us are entering into jobs that are still paying minimum wage even with a college degree or they're making forty or $50,000 a year out of college. So perhaps it seems like this astronomical number. Um, I know when I graduated, $160,000 seemed like a crazy amount of money. But, yeah. you know, once you start to live for a few years, you realize it's not that it's not a lot of money, but it's not like you're not crazy wealthy by any means at $160,000. So I think that could be part of it. I think also, um, depending on where people are in their career, that could also dictate whether or not they feel comfortable with a certain salary. Yeah. So let's talk about financial literacy. To me, financial literacy is the ability to understand what is going on in our financial systems and be able to make choices that are in the best interest of you, the consumer, as opposed to the corporation who's maybe selling you credit cards or bank accounts or whatever it is. Financial literacy is widely regarded as as a major issue across Canada and probably in other countries as well. What do you consider the role of financial literacy to be in someone's life? Why is it important to be financially literate? I definitely think education is a key piece so that individuals understand what they're choosing. When you look at things like payday loans, I think sometimes people get into situations like that that are very bad for their financial health because they don't understand what all of these um, fees and interest rates that are being charged. That being said, I also think that as a government, there's a responsibility to ensure that these corporations aren't able to kind of, in a sense, trick people into some of these like hidden fees around um, certain products. So what kind of things can the government do in order to, to help Canadians with those, I guess, those hidden fees that you talked about? I would love to see, obviously, more financial literacy in schools and into early adulthood, but I think also regulations around um, things like payday loans. And I know uh, recently they've had uh, investment firms have had to outline what percentage you're paying in um, fees per year. And I think that's a fantastic way to start because sometimes when they're hidden, you can't really understand why or what is being charged to you. Whereas if it's spelled out directly, making it simpler for people to understand that maybe don't have a financial education, then it allows them to kind of have more of an insight into that information. Yeah. So obviously you've built your career around being a financial literacy expert. Have you always been financially literate? No. (laughs) I had a really, really good job in university um, in the summer. I think I was making like $19 or $20 an hour, which was fantastic back then. And, I, you know, I was living at home. It was my first year of university. But I'm pretty sure I spent every dollar in my bank account as soon as I got it. 
uh, that summer. So I, I definitely wouldn't say that I was always financially literate by any means. Mm-hmm. So when was the moment that made you realize I need to become more financially literate? I think there's two moments. So the first was kind of when I had $10 left in one of my bank accounts and I wasn't able to pay for something and I kind of felt embarrassed in a sense. And I also was looking back being like, I worked all of these hours and I was paid this great wage for someone who is 18 years old. You know, where did it all go? Mm -hmm. And I think the second moment was when my girlfriend was taking a class at the U of A I think it was a human ecology class on family finance. And she uh, said she had to do a book report. And the, the book was, I think it was The Wealthy Barber. And so she said, you should, you know, you should look into this and you should have a read of it. And I started reading it. And I think it just kind of clicked that okay. this, you know, this notion of saving and compound interest could, you know, make me money. Yeah. And so what were the first steps that you took after you read this book and realized, I, I need to make some changes? I think I made a saving, I don't want to say a spreadsheet because it was definitely not in Excel. It was on a piece <laughs> of paper. I wrote down, you know, how much I would save into what accounts for each uh, week that I was paid or each month. And I started saving towards, I guess, in a sense, spending goals. So maybe I wanted a new dress or a new purse or whatever it was, or a vacation. So I started saving towards those. And I think as my interest peaked, I started doing more research online, borrowing more books, um, and reading all of that information on on the internet and at the library. Yeah. Did that also coincide with your desire to become a CPA at the same time and, you know, wanting to go into accounting? Yeah, it actually goes really nicely hand in hand. I didn't start out in, in the faculty of business, but kind of by the time I started Looking at financial literacy, I had started in the faculty of business and started accounting. So it really started to marry nicely as I was getting my accounting degree and then ultimately my designation. Yeah. CPAs are known as financial experts. Is there such thing as a financially illiterate CPA? Totally. <laughs> <laughs> I won't say names, but I've, I've definitely worked with a few. that Not that they're illiterate in the sense that maybe they most of them tend to live within their means because I think they understand that. But... I think as CPAs, we're taught to make decisions for businesses and do what's right for, you know, tax planning for specific shareholders of like a holding company or whatever. But we don't maybe look at our investment strategies and understand how our money is being best put to use. And I think sometimes that falls to the wayside because we are so focused on helping other people. Yeah. Because, well, how you spend your money is very much a personal thing too, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. So, um... Obviously, it's important to be financially literate. Does the importance of financial literacy change as a person progresses throughout their lives and careers? Is it equally important for a student to be financially literate as a person who's, say, on the cusp of retirement? I'd like to say yes, but it probably depends, again, on circumstance. But if you can kind of start to get your ducks in a row early, you have time on your side. And that is monumental in building wealth over the long term. That being said, if you're, you know, a year or two away from retirement, you really probably do need to have everything in order. So, I mean, it is probably more important as you get older. Yeah. But if you can start early, then that's fantastic as well. Is it ever too late to become financially literate? I don't think so. No, I think everyone can probably still learn something about financial literacy and apply it to their lives. Okay. So let's go through, say, um, different phases of people's lives and provide them with some tips. What advice would you have for a student halfway through their degree about how to handle their finances? 
I'd probably tell them to find some sort of a side hustle that they could bring in some extra income, even if it's a couple hundred dollars a month, and to start saving and investing that, even if they do still have student loans, so that they are starting to build that habit of savings, as well as they're starting to invest for the long term, which allows compound interest to um, multiply into yields that will be in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions, uh, years down the road. Mm -hmm. And where should they look at investing that? I would say a well-diversified mutual fund or an ETF. Um, The Canadian Couch Potato is a great resource. He has, I think, three or four model portfolios on his website, as well as, you know, utilizing a robo-advisor like Wealthsimple or Nestwealth. Since those have now come up, I think those are great, but I think I would focus on low fees for sure. Okay. Um, That's the first time I've actually heard of the phrase robo-advisor. What exactly is a robo-advisor? A robo-advisor is a technology company that helps invest your money automatically. So it takes index funds or ETFs, and based on your risk profile and a bunch of questions that you answer, it's going to put you into a specific portfolio and just kind of, you know, rebalance it and buy and sell things uh, for you without you having to do anything. So it's a a great way to get in and uh, not maybe be too overwhelmed with everything. What is the one thing that you think students should keep in mind when budgeting? I think you definitely have to keep money in your budget for fun. And if you don't, you're just going to end up in a place where you are kind of going to fly off the deep end and spend way too much because you've felt deprived for so long. So balance is always key. But yeah, keeping a little bit of money in your budget for fun is not a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Is there a certain percentage that someone should say put aside for a fun fund? Again, I guess it depends on your budget, but I think... All of your life expenses probably should be about 50% of your income. And so fun should fit into that budget. So again, depending on how much you're making. But if that means as a student that you go out with your friends on a Tuesday because it's half-priced beer and wings as opposed to a Friday when they're full-priced, then those are the decisions you're making. But yeah, still keep some money in that budget for for fun things. Okay. You could make the argument that you should go for half-price wings and beer on one day and another half price, and it still equals it to the same exactly. amount. Exactly, yeah, price, it's right? all about uh, utilizing your yeah. dollars yeah. correctly. Two for the price of one there. Um, do students have any perceptions about student debt? I think they're overwhelmed with the amount, mm-hmm. especially as tuition increases, and wages have stayed stagnant for a long time here in Canada and in the U.S., but you know, graduating with $40,000 worth of student loan debt and making $40,000 of student loan debt seems probably incredibly daunting to mm-hmm. a lot of people. What advice would you have for them to, to not feel completely overwhelmed by this amount that they owe? I think a couple of things. Again, hopefully by the time you graduate and have to start paying off your loans, uh, you can secure a full-time job and remember that that student loan balance was... Um, taken on so that you could earn a higher income in the future. As well, hopefully by then, you'll have that side hustle I talked about, and you'll be able to throw a little bit of extra income at that debt balance to help it, you know, decrease faster. Yeah. Did you have a side hustle when you were a student? I did. I was. I, I had started writing. Um, I was a nanny for a little while. Uh-huh. Um, what else did I do? I feel like I did everything. Sold stuff on Kijiji. <laughs> like, you just get creative to earn a couple hundred bucks more yeah. a month, but it does make a huge difference. Do you miss being a nanny? I miss the kids, yeah. but um, I don't have kids right now, so I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying my life with no kids as, as it stands. Okay. 
Um, so we'll move away from students. So, you know, young professionals graduated from university, working for a couple years. How, what advice would you have for them to balance between living expenses, saving, paying off their debt? For me, I've always, again, been of the opinion that you need to balance it. I know some people get really focused on paying off debt, and that's great. But if you get to the point where you've paid off all your debt and you have nothing in your savings account, I think you can feel a little bit defeated again because your net worth is basically zero. Mm -hmm. As well, if you don't have things like, you know, an, an emergency fund put away and something happens, maybe you lose your job, you're just going to end up back in debt. So I think you can definitely make paying off debt a focus, but you definitely need to have balance as well. So really starting to bolster those savings um, accounts as well as starting to invest. Okay. We talked about how investing early is important, obviously, mm -hmm. but when does it become absolutely critical for someone in their life? I don't know if there's like a specific year okay. that it's absolutely critical, but I would say you definitely need to tr start investing by the time you're 30. Okay. If you had to think of a key phrase that people should keep in mind when they think investing, what would that be? Long term. Oh, okay. So make sure your money's invested for the long term. And I know a lot of people, my friends and some of my family members included, get worried when the market dips down and they think they've lost all this money. But, you know, if you look at the trend lines over the last 50 or 100 years, the general trend of all of the stock market uh, is up. And I think that if you just kind of either buy more when it's lower, thinking maybe it's on sale yeah. or just kind of ignore it and wait for it to correct, you'll be fine. Okay. What about retirement? How soon should someone start thinking about retirement? I think as soon as you make your first dollar, but that's <laughs> probably unrealistic for a lot of people. Yeah. But I think when you get that first job and a lot of jobs offer matching plans, pensions or RSPs, that's when you should start looking at, you know, utilizing some of that money from your employer and putting some of your income away. Yeah. So based on your answer, I'm assuming that you have you've thought obviously thought about retirement. Yes, yeah, I have. Do you have an idea of what your retirement days will be like? I think my husband and I are just going to travel the world, so that's what we want to do. Where do you want to hit first? Oh, boy. Probably somewhere in Africa, because I feel like you need a, like a decent amount of time to see all of the animals and yeah. stuff there. So I think we'll probably hit Africa for sure. Okay. When I was doing research and when I was preparing uh, this episode together, I was referring to this part of the episode as Janine's advice hour. Okay. Various things. So this is my version of kind of asking for a friend, a.k.a. this is actually my own issue, and I'm the first person to admit that I'm incredibly financially illiterate. So what advice would you have for someone who has a hard time staying on budget and is an incredibly impulsive buyer with very poor impulse control? Great questions. Um, I think a couple of things. So I'm going to address the impulse thing first because okay. I feel like everyone faces that at some point in their life, and I have too. Like I said, when I was you know, a student and not into personal finance, I think I spent you know, every dollar I ever had on Starbucks and maybe shoes. Yeah. But um, I think understanding why you have those impulses is important. So one thing could be uh, marketers are really good at what they do. And so for myself, I know that marketers are paid to make you want to buy things. Mm -hmm. And so usually, I guess for me, it's I, I online shop more than I shop in stores. Okay. But um, this rule can apply to either or. But if you leave that item alone for 24 or 48 hours, chances are 
you're probably not going to want it anymore. They have this great way, and I think salespeople are also really good at this, of making you think that there isn't going to be any more left in a day. There's yeah. like a scarcity mindset. And so if you can walk away from it, I would say probably 95% of the time you even get to your car or you've closed the browser, you've completely forgotten about it. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a good way of kind of focusing on those impulses as well as understanding the emotions behind it. So my husband traveled uh, for work a lot a few years back and I found myself shopping a little bit more probably than I should have and it took a while for me to realize that you know maybe it was cuz I was you know missing him or I was lonely and I need, needed something to do. So understanding that also made me I guess focus when I was going to buy something to ask myself am I just doing this because I'm missing my husband. Yeah. So I think those are a couple of ways you can tackle impulse spending as well. If there's something you really want, that delayed gratification of saving up for for it and there is something to be said for, you know, transferring $20 every week into your bank account and yeah. then, you know, you get to the end of the month or the end of a couple months and and you go and buy it and sometimes again you'll find yourself being like, "Oh, do I really want to spend this this $500 on on that item?" And yeah. I think sometimes the answer is no and again it's, it kind of goes back to that good marketing. Yeah. It taps into this concept of fear of missing out too in a lot of totally. ways, right? Um, it's interesting that you said that about marketers being genius because I never considered myself a per- as a person who was vulnerable to marketing. And I remember I was at a store one time and it was it was a bag of chips and I didn't even like the flavor, but it said limited edition. And immediately I went, I need to get this. Yeah. No, marketers are great at what they do. Yeah. Well, these are these are very good tips for, for my friend. Yes, for sure. <laughs> for my friend. Um, what is a super small step that anyone can implement in order to start saving up? What's a small thing that anyone can do in order to reap benefits? I think opening a savings account is a great way of starting. So there are a lot of online banks that have uh, free checkings and savings accounts. So I think those are a great place to start. Tangerine and EQ are two off the top of my head. But even opening a savings account for an emergency fund and specifically dedicating that account for that or for, you know, that dress or that purse that you want, opening a savings account for that and kind of slowly adding money to those accounts teaches you how to start to save. Mm -hmm. Um, And ultimately, that's going to teach you kind of how to invest. And if you can set up an automatic transfer, which in this day and age is pretty simple, that is going to just help you even more because then you don't have to think about it. Because I think for a lot of people, thinking about money all the time can be overwhelming. And especially thinking about their money all the time can be overwhelming. So if you can automate it, then you, you really don't have a lot of work to do. I know for us, like, we get paid, a whole bunch of transfers happen. I don't do anything. I look at the balances. I'm like, okay, that's great. Yeah. And everything kind of just happens in the background. We live in a social media world. You go mm-hmm. through Instagram and you're seeing you're inundated with images of people living these flashy lives, you know, wearing expensive, stylish clothing, eating extravagant meals. And we talked earlier about keeping up with the Joneses. Mm-hmm. How can someone reconcile this need to keep up with the Joneses, particularly when you're seeing everyone live, quote unquote, their best life on social media, but still live within their own means? I think it's important to remember that the Joneses are broke. And what I mean by that is when you see people on social media or you see people with a flashy car and you're wondering how they could possibly afford this and how you're going to be able to do this, you don't see what's in their bank account, right? You don't see the amount of debt that they're carrying. If everyone had to walk around, and I think Gail Vaz Oxlade said this like years ago, but if everyone had to walk around with their debt number written on their T-shirt, I think people would have a completely different perception. And on the other side of that is once you start to amass wealth and once you start to invest, 
no one can see that either, right? Mm -hmm. No one knows if you have $10,000 invested or a million dollars invested. So you really have to look at, you know, what is actually going to be beneficial for you long term. And when we think about, you know, buying the latest, you know, clothing or car or whatever, you know, is that in line with my values? And is that going to, I guess, help me do something further at any point in my life? Or is it just going to be like a temporary piece of happiness? Yeah. Do you think people talk about their debt enough? Is no. It, do you think they should? I I think they should. I think people should be open with it. And again, it is kind of embarrassing. But um, I think if we normalized it, then we might also stop, you know, commending people for buying things, especially when they can't afford them. Or maybe people would be held more accountable. Like, let's say in this example, let's say I had $10,000 of credit card debt and I told you that I had that debt and then I went out and bought a Louis Vuitton purse. And yeah. again, nothing wrong with if you want to buy designer goods, if you can afford it. But you, as my friend, might say like, oh, well, like you have $10,000 of credit card debt at 20%. Like, do you think that that was like a good idea? Yeah. Whereas if I don't tell you and I just buy this Louis Vuitton bag, you're thinking that, oh, I must be so rich. I can afford this $1,000 bag or whatever it costs. Yeah. Do you think people have a responsibility to, I, and I guess not the best word is kind of managed, but to talk about that in the sense of um, my friend, I did know my friend had a lot of debt and I saw her spending a lot to say, hey, you know, I, I've observed this or is it, should I just let her be? And the way she manages her money is the way she manages her money. I mean, you can't tell people how to spend their money. So, you know, scolding a friend probably isn't the best way of going about it. But being open and having maybe like a, a money group or a money chat okay. where you kind of do cheer each other on to get to those, you know, financial goals of paying down debt or, yeah. you know, hitting a certain net worth, I think can maybe refocus the energy as opposed to like, oh, you shouldn't have bought that too. Like, let's celebrate, you know, you paying down your debt or, yeah. you know, hitting a $100,000 net worth. Let's celebrate those things together and let's keep each other on track. Yeah, it's a way of keeping each other accountable. Absolutely. It's like, you know, you never go to the gym at seven in the morning unless there's someone else going with you. <laughs> or at least I don't. There, there has to be someone else going with me or I definitely will not get my butt out of bed. That is fair. What are some small expenses that people have that add up? Oh, I think there are a ton, but I'm not going to hate on lattes because I love my Starbucks. I think subscription fees okay. that people might not realize that they're subscribed to. So if you're subscribed to Apple Music and Spotify, maybe pick one. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure there are some like boxes and uh, magazines or digital subscriptions that you might not remember you're subscribed to that you can start to, I guess, focus on. Yeah. Um, but again, I wouldn't hate too much on little day-to-day day -day expenses. I think if you want to start investing and you want to have more money in your budget, it's better to focus on bigger things. So if you can reduce your rent by $200 a month or negotiate your car insurance or what have you, that's going to have much more of an impact over the course of a year than cutting out lattes twice a week. Yeah. So the world that we live in, in terms of financial literacy and money and the way we spend it and, and the value that money has, it's different than our parents' generation. Mm -hmm. So what financial issues do you think millennials and Gen Zs face that previous generations never had to deal with? Oh, the list is long. <laughs> um, I think, you know, there's a huge housing bubble right now, and that's propped up by the boomers 
and sorry to any boomers that are listening to this. I know my mom will probably disagree with me, but um, they were able to buy houses that were, you know, one, two, three times their salary. And we're looking at houses that are six, seven, ten times our salary on an annual basis. So yeah. I think housing prices are astronomically higher. Um, wages are stagnant. Again, I think I compare my my mom's starting salary to my starting salary, and mine was double hers, but I'm, you know, 30 years younger than she is. So, again, look at that compared to houses. Houses aren't double the price that they were when she was looking. They're four or five times the price. Yeah. So I think those are probably the two huge ones, especially for millennials living in uh, metropolitan centers. Okay. So earlier during your introduction, you talked about being a finance writer, financial literacy expert. Um, you also have a blog, a YouTube channel, a newsletter, a business website. Or am I missing any other mediums here? I'm actually going to be starting a podcast late September with a girlfriend um, talking about women and finances. So okay. there's another one. Okay. Um, do you want to give a bit of a teaser about your podcast, I guess, then? Sure. It's called the Pink Tax Podcast, and it talks about finance and feminism, you know, Women are typically underpaid and therefore kind of save less and have the ability to invest less. So our podcast is really about helping women achieve those financial goals and I guess smash the patriarchy one dollar at a time. Okay, so you've heard about Jeannie's podcast here, people. Um, what gave you the idea to use social media to promote financial literacy? I think the internet is an interesting medium because it came around, I guess it was invented when I was very young, but it kind of came around as a way to communicate in uh, junior high and high school. And so this ability to share information and connect with people seemed really interesting to me. And I've met actually some of my closest friends on Twitter, which is really interesting. One of my bridesmaids I actually met on Twitter. Okay. But, um, you know, promoting and reaching people through that um, means was a way kind of to share my message and share what I was saying and get that out to the masses because I guess in a traditional society, I would have to go around and either knock on doors or, you know, host events and hope that people would sign up yeah. without um, being able to market that any way. Okay. Um, do you consider yourself a social media guru? Oh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, I know how to use it. I'm, I'm not great at, with all the algorithms and they keep changing them. Yeah. But uh, I definitely know how to use Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, all that good stuff. Okay. But. So what has been the response to your services? What do people want to know about financial literacy? And what are some of the common questions that people have when they, they approach you? I think the biggest thing is people are typically overwhelmed and don't really know where to start. Again, going back to financial literacy not really being in our school systems, I think they can feel like daunted by the task of investing and paying down this debt and they want to maintain a certain lifestyle. And sometimes we have to have really hard conversations with mm -hmm. people because they want to continue a lifestyle that they can't really afford. Um, but yeah, I would say most people just don't understand how or why they should start investing. So you talked about financial literacy not being in schools. Um, what kind of conversations can parents be having with their children to teach them about financial literacy at a young age? I think at a young age, the best kind of way I've seen is to give children some money and say they need to divide it up into certain categories. So some for saving, some for spending, and some for donations and giving back. Okay. And I think that's a fantastic way to, to teach that, you know, you don't necessarily keep all of your money. Some of it needs to go to people less fortunate. Some of it you need to save for a longer um, term 
savings goal. Maybe it's education. Maybe it's retirement. And then being able to spend and enjoy some of your money because I think sometimes people get too obsessed with money and, and they don't actually end up enjoying any of the money they've worked so hard for. Yeah. So how do you enjoy your money, Janine, when you want to treat yourself? We definitely, my husband and I travel a lot. Um, we also like to go out for nice dinners and buy nice wines. So th- <laughs> that is definitely our splurge. Yeah. Um, I don't buy a ton of, like, clothing doesn't really do it for me. Um, but, yeah, I would say definitely the travel. And, again, spending time with my husband because we both work so much. So. Yeah. Okay. Um, what kind of commitment is it to keep a blog, a YouTube channel, and a newsletter? Oh, it is a lot of work, and I probably don't do the best job of it sometimes when I'm super busy, but um, I would say it's probably to do to get content up every week. It's probably 10 to 20 hours. Okay. What lessons have you learned from being self-employed? I think the biggest lesson that I've learned is how to, I guess, manage uh, fluctuating income, so making sure that that money is kind of put or there is enough money in a savings account put away in case there is a month where maybe we're on vacation or maybe we are or I'm not earning as much. Um, I think that has definitely been a good good lesson and also to save for your taxes. Mm -hmm. What was your journey like to wanting to be self-employed and own your own business? Um, You talked about being in university. You pursued your CPA designation. Where in that kind of journey did you say, this is what I want to do? I don't know if there was like one specific point. It kind of just started to happen. And um, it's something that I'm really passionate about. So it, it kind of just turned into this this business. Okay. And how long have you had your business open? Oh, I guess I've start, I started writing, you know, almost a decade ago now. Yeah. And I would say in the last couple of years is kind of when it's been more of a, a business focus. Okay. Um, so what advice would you give the budding blogger, YouTuber, entrepreneur that you wish you had known when you first started? Oh, there's so much to say. I think, you know, proofreading your writing, which is something that I still work on, is, um, definitely something for a blog or an article writing standpoint. From a YouTube standpoint, if someone's looking at, you know, starting a channel, getting, a decent microphone and a decent camera, I think, is good. I think my first two videos were on my iPhone, and they were not great. Yeah. Um, so investing a little bit in your business without kind of going crazy, I think, is is important. Yeah. And um, also outsourcing. So if you need to pay someone to edit a video or you need to pay someone to schedule your social media because you can't do it all, I think that's okay as well, and you don't want to stress yourself out by doing everything all at once. Yeah, okay. So that is fantastic advice, Um, and it seems like a good place to wrap up today's episode. So Straight from the CPA's Mouth is centered around Alberta CPAs discussing everything from leadership to finance to education. Before we end this episode, uh, Janine, could you pose a question for our next guest to ponder and answer in the next episode? Absolutely. How would you define success? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so before I wrap up, Janine, do you have any last thoughts that you'd like to add? I think at the end of the day, when, I, when, when we're talking about money, I would just encourage everyone to, you know, seek out one piece of information that they didn't know yesterday and really start to look towards investing for the future. Mm-hmm. Well, you've given so many tips today, so I imagine... There's lots of things to take oh, away thank from you. this episode. Um, so there you have it, listeners, straight from the CBA's mouth. So thank you, Janine, so much for joining us today. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. And be sure to check out our next episode featuring CBAs discussing how to define success. 
Be sure to join our subscriber list in order to get access to exclusive content and contests to win things. You can sign up and get more information at cbaalberta.ca slash podcast. Straight from the CPA's mouth is brought to you by the CPA Education Foundation. The CPA Education Foundation is the charitable arm of the Alberta CPA profession, providing up to $1.2 million each year in support of business and accounting education in the province. This podcast is just one of many resource materials available through the HESHI CPA Knowledge Centre. This virtual hub features Alberta CPAs sharing their unique perspective and vast expertise on topics and issues such as leadership, finance, entrepreneurship, and more. Visit cpaalberta.ca slash foundation for more information on the HESHI CPA Knowledge Centre and to learn how Alberta CPAs inspire success.